0: Hello and good morning everyone, Only Positivity here, I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey guys, and remember, Only Positivity. Hello, and good morning, everyone. Only Positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off podcast number 22 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. Now, before diving into the book and everything like that, let's go ahead and level set um, on what I'm doing here. So, you know, as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life through fitness, music, photography, traveling, one habit that I've really formed is a reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books that I've been reading as of late, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences um, back in my life. So before jumping into the book for today, let's go ahead and start with uh, today's story. Now, now today's today's little spiel is not really a story, um, but it's more about you know something that um, you know I was talking about with my fiance. I've been thinking about a lot over the past few weeks, and you know that's like the impact of of music. Um, in life, right, and especially in my life, and um, going to talk about an artist that I'm really close to specifically, um, the weekend, right. So for those of you that don't know who the weekend is, um, I mean his name is Abel Tesfaye. Um, that probably won't help any further, but um, you know he's a, he's in that hip hop R and B genre, and he um, he sings a lot of um, a lot of sad music, right, um, amongst a, a lot of other things. So. You know, I first found out about the weekend in in like 2011, 2012 when he came out with his um, three albums called Trilogy. Now, at the time when I listened to it, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, it's really cool. Like, it's like sad music about like you know, sex and drugs and and um, failed relationships and things like that. Um, and you take that for what it is at the time, right? But you know, as you go older, grow older, you learn more about the artist. Um, you listen to the songs a little bit more and you really, um, catch on to the lyrics. Now, you know, when I, when I was younger, I wasn't really the, the most expressive guy, or I didn't really know how to channel my energy or emotions the right way. Um, my emotional maturity and emotional intelligence wasn't where it is today, right? So, you know, um, as I, as I would, uh, Listen to this music, and you know, go through life, go through you know, relationships or breakups or tough times with my family. Um, you know, a lot of things would happen that would, and I felt like I maybe didn't have anyone to talk to, right? So, um, as I became closer to the Weekends albums, um, I realized that that was kind of my outlet, right? You know, you would you would listen to a lot of his lyrics that were deeper, and he doesn't put a lot of structure or specifics to his, um, lyrics. So, you can kind of almost apply it to your life, right? Because it's a little vague. Um, and, you know, at times when, you know, I was going through things, I was, I was experiencing sadness, I was in lulls, um, I would listen to The Weeknd, and, um, he wouldn't pull me out of it, right? But he'd make me okay with being there, right? There's beauty behind the madness, there's beauty in sadness, right? You feel those feelings, um, and he was so, he, he was able to so eloquently put some of these experiences that we all go through with breakups and whatnot, you know, specifically like, you know, people falling out of love, right? You know, if you're fortunate, if you go through a breakup and, you know, it's just a clean break, um, then that, that's that's easy in a way, right? It's tough, but it's easier, right? But a lot of times, people make it messy, you know? Um, you, you miss that person, you miss their warmth, you miss their presence, um, and then it becomes foggy and muddy. Um, you end up hurting each other more, um and things like that you know and people falling out of love right um the weekend uses a lyric that says you know they all feel the same um, adjust to the pain like tears in the rain you know like it's it's a little bit deeper but it resonates right um he says things like expectations can kill a simple man um which i believe is very true right especially in relationships expectations can kill relationships so not really a lighthearted story for you guys today but um to be honest you know music get can get you out of a lot of things you know i'm really able to zone into a song um and you know escape reality for a little bit um and i think that's the power of music right it can take you somewhere else so you know enough on that enough on the on the dark stuff this morning but um let's go back to the book for today so um today we're going to be going through um, part two uh, of the crime book By big ideas simply explained. So, you know, we're going to go through a couple of parts on this because there's different types of criminals and they break that out in the book. Um, You know, there's bandits, robbers, arsonists, like we talked about in the last podcast, Um, white collar crimes, organized crimes, kidnapping, murder, serial killers, right? There's a lot of different types of crime. And, you know, one interesting thing that this book um, gave me a new perspective on was that, you know, crime. Um, can be a reaction to economics, political policy, um, and economic circumstances, right? Um, you know, what's, what's right or ethical is not always law, right? They don't coincide together. Um, and people can react to oppression or poverty um, and radicalize, right? So crime is always um, a, a product of the environment. And then, you know, as societies have become more civilized over time, and population increases, the police forces have to catch up too, right? So, coming to today's topic, uh, today's topic, we're going to talk about con artists, okay? Um, And I think there's some, you know, outstanding um, historical depictions in in this section of the book because mainly of the, like, audacity, um, how bold and how persuasive con artists are, right? The confidence they have... um, to to swindle someone out of out of their money, persuade someone or con them, and and not feel any remorse for that action. Um, to me, is very interesting, you know. So we can go ahead and go into the the first story. So we'll go through three stories today, um, and all all true stories. So the first is going to be um, the sale of the Eiffel Tower, um, which obviously took place in Paris, France, in 1925. So the person we're talking about here is Victor Lustig. Um, and and, the, and the, this story is all about him. So <clears throat> Victor was born in 1890 in the Czech Republic. And he learned many European language, uh, U- European languages as he grew up. And, you know, that's something I really want to do. I really want to learn a, a lot of languages because, you know, I only know English and like a little bit of Gujarati, which is, um, you know, an Indian language. So... Um, you know, that's one good sign, though, too, right, of people um, who, who have a very specific talent, right? If people, some people are able to pick up languages very quickly, um, and that's not me, right? Some people are able to see the similarities amongst um, languages, and that helps them learn it quicker, you know? Uh, but coming back to Victor, Victor began his criminal career um, preying on wealthy travelers on ocean liners. So, you know, to me, like, I would assume it's a little harder to verify someone's identity when you're on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean, right? Um, that You're not meeting them at a coffee shop. You're not meeting them at their establishment or their house. It's hard to see their stature in society. So, you know, a, a smart move right there if, you know, you're a con man. Um, one of his most successful crimes, though, um, was, a, was a money printing scheme. So he he had this invention or this machine uh, that he claimed would print perfect bills. And that kind of sounds like Catch Me If You Can with Frank Abagnale, but um, Frank Abagnale's story is actually in the crime book as well, but I figured, you know, people probably have seen Catch Me If You Can, so I won't go into his story. So what he would do was, Victor would load real $100 bills into this machine, and he would do it while people watched, Uh, and he would tell them it's a fake uh, $100 bill. Um, So what he would do is, um, he would would load these uh, Hundred dollar bills into the machine, and then the, he would just literally pull them out of the machine, and people were in awe, right? They thought he had a money printing machine. He had broken the system. Um, how could I buy this, right? So, people would. Some people even bought that machine for thirty thousand dollars, which you know in nineteen twenty five is a lot of money. It's a lot of money right now, but it was even worth more money uh, in nineteen twenty five. So. You know, it would obviously take these people a couple of hours to realize that the machine was fake. And, you know, by that time, Lustig was long gone. So, um, like we said, it just kind of goes to show the time period, right? Like moral codes are catching up because, you know, personally, I would feel horrible if um, I swindled someone out of $30,000. But, you know, you don't know this person's situation, you don't know Victor's situation, put, in, put yourself in his shoes. You're not exactly sure where his mind was at. But, Coming forth to, to the sale of the actual Eiffel Tower, right? So in 1925, Victor um, read a newspaper about how the Eiffel Tower was rusting over and it needed some repairs. So that statement alone was enough for Victor to start scheming, right? So um, the, the Eiffel Tower was built in 18, 1889 for you know, an exposition in Paris, right? And we'll talk about that later. But um, it was going to be dismantled and and move to a different location in the early 1900s right and this is where Lustig saw that opportunity so what he did was he sent five letters to five different businessmen on an official government letterhead right um, right the extent that this guy went to to like uh, like to um, illustrate legitimacy right so in that letter he claimed to be um, the deputy director general of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs, which, by the way, is a long-ass title to have, right? Like, if I had to explain that to someone, I would abbreviate it, but anyway, what can you think of something else besides, you know, a ten, ten-worded title? But anyway, so <clears throat> the, the letter that he would send out invited these businessmen to, like, a fancy hotel where they were going to discuss that opportunity. So all five men showed up, and Lustig, you know, dressed up in a nice suit, Um, was ready to play the part. So, you know, one thing that I'll say and a theme throughout um, these con artists is that you cannot knock their due diligence, right? Um, He must have been really practiced, right? He must have practiced the situation, been confident about it, um, and able to read body language, pick up on little cues, right? So when someone's coming like that, they're kind of like a wolf among sheep, right? But in any case, so when they met, Lustig told the men that the government had planned to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. Um, and he would take bids for the right to demolish the tower. So, you know, that's a really far-fetched plan. I cannot believe that he thought this would work. You know, I I didn't know there was a market, like a big market like that for scrap metal. I mean, I kind of know there was. But um, people willing to pay, you know, large sums of money for scrap metal. Um but anyway, um, so he, he would stroke their egos, right? So Lustig told the men that they had been chosen because of their honest reputations, right? He's buttering them up there. Um, he rented a limo, and he invited them out for a tour of the tower, right? Um, he, he sold the tower, then, to, to this guy named Andre Poisson. So um, Andre really wanted to be part of the Parisian elite, right? And social stature was a big thing in the 1920s, early 1900s. So he preyed on the fact that these people were looking to jump social strata. So André Poisson's wife then became uh, suspicious, right, Um, about Lustig and started asking a lot of questions. So then André went ahead and approached Lustig. So then, you know, this guy, Lustig, always on his toes. He was able to add fuel, right, to that lie. So he told Poisson that he was right. He's like, "You know what, man, like you're right. Like I was I was being a little bit shady, but what I was trying to do was just like solicit a bribe for the contract, right? And this actually won Poisson's confidence. And not only did he give into that bribe, he gave Lustig an additional $70,000 um, for whatever reason, right? So Lustig went forward and he 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 correctly assumed that Poisson would be too ashamed to report the crime once he left right which was correct so Poisson never reported that and Lustig fled and went to the USA where he continued his con artist like ways out there and just to show you how bold this guy was how it could be like the thrill um he also conned Al Capone right a major mob boss in the 1920s 30s um, in Chicago. So what he did was he told Al Capone that he had some sort of financial model for success. So Capone gave him $50,000. Now Capone is not someone you want to be messing with or his money, right? But what what Lustig did was he returned the $50,000 later. And he told Al Capone, he said, you know what, man, like the model actually didn't work. I didn't feel safe investing. Um, so I pulled your money out and here's your money back, right? Here's all $50,000. So Admiring Lustig's honesty, Capone gave him $5,000, right? So it wasn't just about the money for Lustig. It was about the thrill, right, of, the, of conning someone. And Lustig went so far as to have um, 10 commandments <clears throat> for con men, right? So some of them include being a patient listener, never looking bored, um, wait for the other person to reveal their political opinions, then agree, Never be untidy, never get drunk, uh, never pry, because they'll eventually tell you, right? And what you see here is that, so um, Lustig does not obey the law, but he follows his own set of rules, right? So we talk about um, how, how, you know, when, when public laws and things like that oppress people, um, they're not going to necessarily see the worth in following them if they can work in between the law. But a lot of people will have their own code of conduct or their own modus operandi, right, for the way they do things, um, which I think is very, very interesting. But anyway, um, so that's Victor Lustig, right? Sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal with no authority to do so. Very interesting. So we'll hop off um, of Victor Lustig and we'll move on to a more um, recent uh, crimes for your con artist. So... The person we're going to talk about here is Doris Payne, right? So, the story takes place from 1952 to 2015, right? So only a few years ago. So, with a couple background facts. So, Doris was born in West Virginia in 1930. Um, she had an African American father and a Sioux mother, right? And she was the youngest of six children and was raised in segregated America. Okay. So before the Civil Rights Movement, all of that. So my thought, right, not really to the story, is that, so times were really hard back then, right? And I know legacy is a big deal, but having six kids, like, oh, man, like, especially during a tough time like the Great Depression, um, you know, I don't know. Just like wrap it up, man. Like, you know, like I don't, I wouldn't want to have even one kid probably during the Great Depression if I couldn't support it, right? Like, that would not be the time for me. But, you know, that's just my personal opinion. But I just, you know, a lot of kids, right? Six kids. But anyway, we'll go back to Doris Payne. So, Doris Payne wanted to be a ballerina, um, and she ultimately turned out to be an international jewel thief. So, um, at age 13, she felt slighted by a white store owner um and she but she was in a a not a pawn shop but like more of a jewelry store right she felt slighted by a white store owner and she was trying on a wristwatch. and what ultimately happened was she left the store with the watch still on her wrist um and she gave the watch back but at that point she realized that she could get away with things like this so you know my thought is at age 13 you know this happened and then she she thought she would get away with it. I don't know if the authors of this book are, you know, putting those pieces together or if they've actually talked to Doris Payne. Um, you, know, I, you know, I don't want to just, like, take these facts for truth but um, with blind faith, but it could be the case, right? They could have interviewed her. Um, so anyway, so Doris quit high school and she worked in an assisted living facility, which is a really good cause, right? And um, that was her first and only real job ever. So... Um, you know, school's not for everyone. I get it. I totally get it. Um, and it seems like you know, she had good intentions for working in an assisted living facility. Um, but shortly afterwards, she became a single mother and had two kids. So, um my thought again is, you would think, you know, seeing her parents growing up with a tough life of six kids, um, she wouldn't just jump into having kids at a young age just to support herself, right? because, um, when you have kids and you're in, a, you know, in a in a situation where um, you're not very affluent, um, you don't have all the income coming in to support them, you're gonna find ways to support them, right? Um, and that's exactly what she did. So she realized she could support her family through through stealing from high-end jewelry stores, right? She didn't have to get a nine-to-five or develop an income stream. Um, she was able to make ends meet by stealing, and you know. Uh, you know, you don't want to blame her, right? Like, life can be tough in America, right? There is there is that American dream um, that that people feel like they can attain when they come to this country. But um, not necessarily the case. So life can be tough, and you have to make ends meet. So, um, coming up, she realized she could utilize her charm and a lot of her sleight of hand tricks uh, to, to try on a lot of expensive items from jewelry stores, um, and distract store clerks so what she would do is she would ask to wear let's say for example a bunch of rings and she would move them from finger to finger and she would ask questions about them I mean the cut and the clarity and the clerks would eventually lose track um but you know you know now i feel like personally in the present day jewelry stores might have caught up because you know when i was uh ring shopping with my fiance. They were very, very um, methodical. Like it was only showing one ring at a time, maybe two. There's always someone directly watching us. Um, When we're done with one, they they tell us to wait a minute. They put it back. So it seems like they're catching on to that. Um, So coming back to um, Doris. So Doris had ultimately perfected her routine, right? She would dress nicely. Um, She would speak in a refined manner. Um... So we talk about the homework and due diligence, right, with with Victor Lustig and Doris Payne, with con artists. Um, it would be really hard for a store clerk to protect themselves from a crime like this, right? Because people are directly coming after you, right? When there's some opportunist that, you know, if they walk by, they see, you know, a door open or someone not, you know, minding something in a store, they can just snatch it really quickly. But, you know, this, this lady and Victor Lustig, they had a plan, right? And that's hard to defend against. And... You know, going off of that, um, the book says, like, her greatest asset was her ability to charm and captivate her audience with um with great stories, okay? So this would, like, relax people, get them to joke with them, um, and become more friendly, right? Like a store owner who who's um, persuaded into being relaxed, you know, they probably think, oh, you know, this lady's going to buy some stuff from me, I'm going to have a good day. And also, she's being cool, so why not? You know, let's have a good time. So, coming back to the transgression of events... So, once Doris would leave the store, she would sell her items to a fence, um, which is essentially someone who buys stolen goods and then they'll sell them. And I know that um, not because I looked it up, but because um, of Red Dead Redemption, right? So, in Red Dead Redemption, when you have like, um, you know, pelts and stuff that you have to sell, <laughs> this is a video game like story here, so don't mind me, but those who've played Red, Red Dead Redemption will know. You you can sell like items that you pick up from people and stuff like that, um, and to a fence and he'll give you money for it, um, and then you can buy goods and stuff with it. So anyway, being nerdy. Um, so anyway, uh, coming back to Doris, so she used over 20 different aliases and um, nine different passports to really travel the world, robbing jewelry stores. And you know, just the logistics of setting up all those different identities would really kill me. You know, it was like just the extent you'd have to go to through um, to to cover your identity, right? Goes to show the commitment. Maybe maybe it wasn't just all about the money. Maybe this was a fun lifestyle for her, right? So coming back to her biggest theft, so she stole a five hundred thousand dollar diamond from Cartier in Monaco. So. Bougie all around, right? Five hundred thousand dollar diamond from Cartier, an expensive store in Monaco, a very bougie location, right? So this lady had um, had a lot of audacity, um, a lot of confidence, which you know can admire in some respect. So um, she wasn't always successful, right? She was she would sometimes get caught, and she would serve um, a string of jail sentences. Um, she stole a um, diamond that, that was $60,000 in 1998 from Colorado, um, from a store in Colorado. Um, so, like, you know, she didn't always escape, even though she was good at it. And you would think after you got caught a couple of times, you would stop, right? But no, she's chronic, right? She was arrested at age 83 in 2013 for um, insurance fraud, right? For receiving a payout, $25,000 um, for an illegitimate claim. She was then again arrested in 2015. So at that time she was 85, right? So kind of showing no signs of slowing. Um, but like, you know, talk about psychology for a little bit, right? It's it's not always about the fact that that Payne grew up in poverty and wanted to do better, right? Um, like I said, she seemed to have some kind of thrill associated with the steel, the thrill of getting away with it, that adrenaline rush. Um, and in the book, the only regret Payne seems to have expressed Um, our regrets of being caught, right? She's not worried about stealing. She doesn't seem sorry about that. That's just what the book says. We don't know for sure. But um, yeah, a very interesting story about how um, trying times can really um, bring the best or the worst out of people, right? Um, And even though Doris Payne broke the law, You know, if she put those skills, um, let's say, like, let's say she became like an FBI investigator, she'd probably be a really good one because of the skills that she developed, um, perfecting her craft over 50, 60 years, you know? So, you know, that was Doris Payne, right? Talk about a jewel thief there. And then that'll bring us to our last story for today, um, which is an interesting one. And, you know, everyone knows about it, excuse me, but. It's the escape from Alcatraz, so that took place on June eleventh, nineteen sixty-two, in San Francisco. So, you know, I think this is this is extremely um, interesting and intriguing story, right? Really goes to show um, what the human mind and the human body can endure um, when put under stressful conditions and things like that. So, <clears throat> a couple background facts. So, Alcatraz was a maximum security prison. Um, it was regarded as escape proof. So um, anyone who had tried to escape was either um, recaptured or or died in the act of escaping. So um, it was surrounded, right? Alcatraz is on an island in San Francisco Bay, um, and it's surrounded by extremely cold water um, and strong currents, right? So it would be very difficult to escape. So these guys, um, four guys, They planned the escape for two years, right? So now that's a long time, right? But they had nothing but time to perfect this escape. So no need to jump the gun prematurely. So the escape involved four people. Clarence and John Anglin, who robbed banks in the 1950s. Frank Morris, who was also a bank robber. And he was an orphan who was raised in foster homes his whole life. Um... He also had a very high IQ and was deemed to be like the uh, the mastermind behind this plan, even though they don't give him the credit for that um, in the book. So, um, and lastly, Alan West. So, um, of the four guys, only three made it out. And then we'll talk about what happened to the fourth guy. So a couple of things that they did, right? They scaled a 30-foot wall and crossed over a rooftop. They maneuvered down a 50-foot pipe shaft. They climbed two 12 foot barbed wire fences. Now, you know, all the things seem realistic to me besides this one um, with the barbed wire fences um, because, you know, maybe they they put something over the fence um, to cover it. but in my, in my experience, not like I've had experience with barbed wire fences, but from what I've read about them, they can really mess you up um, and cut you up pretty badly. So I'm sure they experienced some kind of wounds there, but um, yeah, kind of hard to believe they got around all these things. So anyway, they did all of this, right? Everything I just mentioned, they did all of it while carrying a makeshift raft, and they inflated that um, to escape. So, you know, coming back to a little bit more history on the brothers and the the folks involved. So, you know, um, in 1961, so the Anglin brothers, Morris and West, they all found themselves in a string of cells in Alcatraz right next to each other. So naturally, they all became friends, right? They became buddies. And Alan West started to make a plan to escape and he did that after he found some um, discarded saw blades in a corridor, right? So he had some cutting utensils at this point and started to devise a plan. So after that, what they started doing was looking for weak points in their cells. So um, they ultimately found ventilation ducts in their cells that they realized they could loosen, okay? Um, So what started happening was They were chiseling away chiseling away right they would take turns as lookouts um if any if any of the guards were coming they would signal the other members who were you know carving out their cells Um, and they created a periscope even to spy on the guards so you can tell like these guys were methodical they were sophisticated and they were purpose-driven in their methods right Um, so they they were sharpened spoons uh they created a drill from a vacuum cleaner engine which is insane to me, right? Very innovative. Um, And like I said, big attestation to what humans can do when put under stressful circumstances. But anyway, they would make most of their daily music hour as well, right? So this is time where inmates were allowed to play their music loudly. And this would really, you know, suppress or muffle the sounds of their digging um, and their excavating and all that stuff. So, you know, they're doing this. They're doing this for days, weeks, months. um, And finally they hit an unguarded utility corridor behind all the cells. So in that utility corridor, there were a lot of pipes going up to the roof. So um, they climbed up those air ducts um, and those pipes, and they got to the roof, and they cut away a ventilation fan. Okay. So they made a a workshop on the roof, and what they did was they housed materials there to get off the island, but um, they also would create materials. So one thing they did, they needed waterproof like life vests or something like that, and so they would sew them together, and they would put them up against the hot pipes, um, and really like like weld them together, right? Um, Catalyze them so it was waterproof. Um, They they were also creating um, dummy heads out of like cement powder mixture. to appear like they were sleeping when they were, like, up there working on the roof, right? So they would paint it with flesh-colored paint. Um, They would stick hair to it from the barber shop in the jail. Um, So, you know, these guys were really, really innovative. You know, it kind of is interesting, like, where do inmates get cement mix? I could see them getting paint, I guess, um, and the hair, but I don't know where they would get cement mix. Um, But anyway, so, you know, on their rooftop workshop that they had... They they would create a lot of things out of out of stolen objects. So they would create rubber raincoats. Um, they would they created a wooden paddle. They created a raft even, and they stole an accordion from another inmate to inflate the raft. So you know, um, just just like I said, very innovative, um, and and they seem to to have a knack for this even. So let's let's flash forward to the nights they are ready to escape, right? So June eleventh, nineteen sixty two. Um, so, a couple of days ago, actually, like, you know, 50, 60 years ago, so, um, what actually happened was, so, Alan West, um, the guy who, quote-unquote, devised the plan, um, the opening for, for the tunnel in his cell became a little bit too wide, a little bit too visible, okay? So, then what he did was he patched it up with some cement mix, some makeshift cement mix. So, when it dried... The hole became too narrow for West to climb through. And then by the time he got it open, the others had left without him. You know, which I think is like really bogus, right? Because if he was the one who actually devised the plan and they just left without him, um, that's, some, that's some serious betrayal right there. But, you know, I kind of also understand that like, you know, every minute the other guys waited was a minute that the guards could, like, potentially catch on to their plan. So, you know, I guess it's understandable. So, the, the, remaining, the, the last three guys, who actually escaped, they, they scaled the barbed wire fences and inflated their raft, okay? So, like, the next day, the guards found out that they weren't there. And then an immediate manhunt was put together for 10 days to catch these guys. So, you know, law enforcement, um, they, they conducted air... Sea and land searches. Um, the Coast Guard even discovered a paddle, and it was found like wrapped in plastic um, with a photo of the England family. Actually, um, kind of just signifying that you know it was potentially the paddle that um, um, the England brothers used to escape. But it could also be a ploy to potentially show that they might have died, right? So they also found remnants of this raft, right? That they that they the supposed raft that the guys made. Um, they they never actually found any human remains, so um, law enforcement just concluded that you know the cold water and strong currents were were would have made it very unlikely that anyone would have made it to shore. So you know, flash forward to 17 years later, 1979, the the investigation was closed um, and they handed it over to the U.S. Marshals, right? So the FBI handed it over to the U.S. Marshals. Um, so You know, personally, like if you ask me, like I think that they did make it, right? I think they made it. Um, and they used the fact that, you know, um, law enforcement was like, oh, the water was too cold, the currents were too strong. They used that to their advantage and they laid low, right? That's just my opinion. I don't know that, you know, but, um, they never found any bodies, but granted, it is the ocean. So, um, I don't know how much they could look or how long they could look for them. So, um, Talking about some recurring themes, right? What what do all three of the stories we talked about today have in common? One, you know, con artists have the power of persuasion. Um, some other common traits, you know, um, psychopathy, right? Um, psychopathic tendencies, narcissism, and then like Machiavellianism, right? Just, just the lack of moral code, right? The lack of ability to feel remorse... For hurting someone um, through being cunning or sneaky, right? No feelings of guilt. So, you know, in all these in all these stories, potentially, especially the first two, you would think that you know making money is their goal, right? You think, you know, I just want to get some money, um, and then I'm good. But it's not, right? Because you see that they didn't stop after they made money. Um, part of it involved the uh, the adrenaline of pulling off a scam. Okay, so. Um, But additionally, you know, um, the type of criminal we have here is not a violent one, right? Um, Nobody killed anyone here um, in terms of con artists. So um, police officers and law enforcement is usually more concerned with catching violent criminals. So they don't attribute as much attention um, around that time to con artists, right? They're not seen as, um, as high of a threat. So, you know, those are the three stories I had for you guys today. I know the material is a little bit more dense, but, you know, I'm a big history buff. um, And especially this being history of crime. um, Very interesting. Um, So, you know, feel free to leave me any comments on how, you know, I can make this more interesting for you guys. But um, like I said, I love history. So, like I said, feel free to leave me any comments. I hope you guys are enjoying. And remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.